This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now. Thank you, Jesus. Let's look at a great text about resurrection right now. John chapter 11. So we're going to talk about the power of Jesus over death today. We're going to take a break here for a couple of weeks. Um, We're going to finish up Isaiah after Easter. So we look at chapters 56 through 66. But for Palm Sunday and Easter, we wanted to do something a little bit different. Um, And so we're going to look today at John 11. And this is an event that happens just before Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the day that we, we celebrate on Palm, Palm Sunday. This happens immediately before that. And it is an event that really just kind of foreshadows what is going to happen in Jerusalem that week, but not only there, it's also an event that foreshadows what's going to happen in our lives eventually if we know Jesus, and that is resurrection. So let's look at John 11, and we're going to read just parts of the the, the chapter as we go through. Let me just really encourage you as I hope you'll do every Sunday, have your Bible open, whether it's a Bible like this or a tablet or whatever. Um, And today, certain verses will appear on screen. A lot of the verses will not appear on the screen. And so we don't want to be overly reliant on screens. Have your Bible here. Have it open um, as we walk through every, every Sunday. You know, just get so much more if you've got your Bible open and, and just ready to kind of dig in. So let's begin here with, chapter, with uh, verse 1 of John 11. Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair, and it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sister sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, the sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Let's pick it up at verse 17. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. 
Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. And then pick it up at verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there is already a stitch because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe that you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. Father, we pray that as we, as we look at this incredible chapter today, that you would take us deeper into the, the meaning of resurrection, the meaning of your power over death, and that, Lord, this would be a word of incredibly good news that, that we would truly take in for ourselves, that we would truly believe this, that we would believe in the one who is the resurrection and the life. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Yeah, you know, I've not really watched that that many shows, you know, streaming on Netflix or Amazon Prime. I was really late to kind of all of that. I don't think we had Netflix until about a about a year ago. But I have watched a couple of different uh, sh- shows, and I've noticed that with the advent of of streaming, where you have like different seasons and one episode just kind of right on top of the other, that screenwriters have become increasingly good at just kind of ending one episode in such a way that they just, they they whet your appetite to want to watch the the next episode. And I don't know about on your TV, but on mine, it, it automatically defaulted to the next episode. Like it was taking me to the next episode, whether I wanted to watch the next episode or not, you know, and I had to go in and kind of disable that function because, I, you know, I guess, they, I guess they do that to encourage, you know, binge, binge watching or whatever. You'll, so you'll watch episode after episode and just kind of, kind of binge on it. And I really didn't want to be too much of a, of a, of a binger uh, with that. But listen, you can binge on the Bible all you want. <laughs> and when you read the Bible, and especially when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, on the four Gospels, what you see is that the, the Gospel writers are very intentional about kind of queuing you up, teeing you up 
for what comes next. And so one of the ways that you can get more out of your Bible reading, especially in the Gospels, is to, is if, you, if, you, if you look, if you read it in such a way and you ask questions like, how does this set the stage for what comes next? It just adds another layer of richness. And that's absolutely the case with John 11. Because John 11 is placed immediately before the beginning of Passion Week. It happens right before Jesus rides into Jerusalem and it foreshadows. It foreshadows what's going to happen in Jerusalem that week with the death and resurrection of Christ. But more than that, it's foreshadowing what is going to happen to those who are in Christ, to, to you and me, and the resurrection that we will experience one day. So what do we see here in this incredible chapter? Let's look first of all at the, at the situation here, and, and let's go back and look at verses one through three. John says, now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with, with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair, and it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sisters sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. <clears throat> now to understand what's happening here, it really helps to understand the relationship that Jesus has with these three people. So Mary and Martha and Lazarus are all siblings, two sisters and a brother. They live in Bethany, which was a little village less than two miles away from Jerusalem. They live together in the same house. Parents are never mentioned. Spouses are never mentioned, which, which tells us that, that almost certainly their parents have, have, have passed away. And they probably passed away when these three were, were quite young. And so these are probably teenagers or maybe very young adults. And at some point in time, they have come into the orbit of Jesus. And they have become wholehearted followers of, of Jesus. And, and, and he has become incredibly close to them, to the point that when Jesus was doing ministry in Jerusalem, he would stay with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He would stay at their house. Their house was sort of a base of operations for him when he was doing ministry in Jerusalem. And, and you really get the feeling that Jesus, his heart had gone out to them. They, they'd lost their parents early, and, and he, he has really become like a, a loving big brother in their lives. They, Lazarus has become like a, a little brother to him. Mary and Martha are like little sisters to him. He is, he is, he is deeply involved with this family. And you notice the, the language here is incredibly touching in verse three. When, when Lazarus gets ill, the sisters send word to Jesus, the one you love is sick. And, and you see that again in verse five, Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and, and, and Lazarus. Now, this points to a couple of really important things about Jesus. First of all, he was a real human being with real feelings and, and real emotions. Yes, he was 100% God, but he was also 100% man. And he loves these people, he's incredibly close to these three 
people and he experiences all of the emotions and and the feelings of of a real human being. It's important to know that. It's also important to to know that when it says, Lord, they say the Lord, the one you love is, is sick, that, that that is your identity as well, that, that you are loved by him. I love the way that Paul begins the letter to First Thessalonians. He, he calls them brothers and sisters loved by God. Listen, that's, that's your identity, right? That's your identity too. You, you are loved. You, you are loved by him. The second thing that I want us to note here is the, is the purpose. The purpose of what's happening. Verse four, when Jesus heard it, he said this sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now this sounds very similar to something that that happened not too far before this at the beginning of John nine. Turn there in your Bibles to the beginning of the ninth chapter, And let's look at verses one through three there. As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. So Jesus is going along, and he sees this, this, this the pitiful sight on the side of the road of this, this guy who's blind. He's been blind all of his life. He's never seen the light. He has been blind from birth. But the question that his disciples ask is not anything. It's not about compassion or what can we do for this person. Their question is, who's at fault here? Because that was the assumption in this culture. If, if, you're, if you suffered some kind of disability like this or, you know, were on the receiving end of some kind of tragedy or whatever, you know, it was because somebody had messed up and somebody was being uh, punished for it. So their question was, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus res- responds by saying, guys, you don't have a clue what you're talking about. There's stuff going on here that is so far beyond what you can understand. Jesus says in verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. In other words, God has a plan here that is deeper and that is higher than what you can possibly imagine. Now that's, that's kind of what he's saying here in chapter 11 and verse 4. Jesus says this sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Notice here, the, it's an interesting choice of, of, of words. This sickness will not end in death. Now, now Lazarus is going to die, but, but see, death is not the end. <laughs> death is not the end. The sickness will not end in death. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian who stood very courageously against Hitler and the Nazis in, in, in Germany, but before and, and during World War II. But eventually he was arrested, put into a concentration camp, 
And when it came time for his execution and the guards came to get him to take him to be executed, Bonhoeffer, who had become like a pastor to his fellow inmates, turned to them and he said, this is the end. For me, the beginning of life. This, this sickness will not end in death. No, because, because for those who are in Christ, death is not the end, right? It's the beginning of real life. Verses five through seven. Now, Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Now, this is like a really strange transition here between verses five and six, right? It says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he, where he was. Like, how, how, does this, how does this fit together? He loves these people intensely, and then he hears that one of them is about to die, and he stays where, where he is. Well, again... It's because God is doing something deeper and higher than what we can possibly imagine. That's what Ephesians 3.20 says, right? He is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond what all we ask or imagine. If you've walked with the Lord for any length of time, you know this to be the case. And you can look back over the course of your life and you can see, see things that you experienced that were incredibly painful and unexplainable at the time. There were no answers. And you can look back years later and you can see how God as sort of a master chess player was just kind of setting things up to do something more beautiful than what you possibly could have conceived of at the time. Look at verse 11. He said this and then he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. See, no one needs to tell Jesus that Lazarus has died. As God, he knows that. No one needs to inform him. But he says, he's fallen asleep and I'm going there to wake him up. The great composer Bach once wrote a piece of sacred music about the, the, the return of Christ and the resurrection that believers are going to experience on that day called Sleepers Awake. Winston Churchill's funeral was held on January 30th, 1965 in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. At one point in that service, high up in the dome of St. Paul's, a bugler broke into taps which of course is the, you know, the sign that things have come to an end, that the, you know, the day has come to an end. But then immediately after the final note of taps, another bugler up on the other side of the dome broke into reveille, the signal that the day has just begun, that it's time to wake up. And see, for believers, the final note for us, it's not gonna be taps, it's going to be reveille. We're going to be raised. And that brings us to the scene that we see here. Uh, let's look at verses 17 through 19. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to, to, to comfort them about their brother. And so Jesus walks into just a, a scene of, of sadness. It, the, the just death has just cast a pall 
over this entire scene. Everybody knew each other in that town. They're all there. People have gathered. People are emotional. People are crying. There's a young man who has passed away. It's especially tragic. And it's just a scene of incredible sadness. In verses 20 and following, as soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Some people read verse 21 as if Martha is kind of complaining, you know, uh, well, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. It's not like that. It's not like that at all. It's more like, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. It's, it's, It's an affirmation of her faith. Verses 23 and 24. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now what she's affirming here is is good, sound, biblical theology. But he's going to draw something else out of her. What she's affirming is correct. But he's going to He's going he's to make this more personal. And he's going to draw her out more. Verses 25 and 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? I am the resurrection and the life. This is one of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. So in 635, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In 812, he says, I am the light of the world. In 1070, he says, I am the gate for the sheep. In 1011, he says, I am the good shepherd. In 146, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In 155, he says, I am the vine. And here in 1125, I am the resurrection and the life. I am. Those two words have incredible biblical significance, going all the way back into the Old Testament. So one day, Moses was out tending his sheep. And he looks up, and he sees a really weird sight. There's a bush that's on fire, but it's not burning up. And he he comes closer to see what what this phenomenon is. Just a ball of fire, this bush is burning, and yet it is not consumed. And it gets closer, and then a voice comes from heaven. Moses, take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. And then God tells Moses, you're, gonna, you're my chosen instrument to go to Egypt and to lead my people out of slavery. And then Moses asks God this question. He said, when I go to them and I tell them the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, what should I tell them that your name is? And God answers this way in Exodus 3.14. God replied to Moses, I am 
who I am. This is what you should say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now fast forward to this exchange that Jesus has with the religious leaders in John 8. John 8, 56 through 58. Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was, I am. Now John has telegraphed all of this in the very first verse of his gospel when he says this about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the divinity of Jesus is seen in his power over death. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even though he dies, will, will, will live. And then he says to Martha, do you believe this? She said, I believe that my brother will rise in the resurrection at the last day. She was right about that. There's going to be a resurrection on the last day, right? But see, he's drawing her out more. He says, what do you believe about me? D.A. Carson says this, Jesus' concern is to divert Martha's focus from an abstract belief in what takes place on the last day to a personalized belief in him who alone can provide it. Friend, what have you done with Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? See, because Christianity is, is, is not, it's, it's not just about sort of believing a set of, intellectually believing a set of facts, even if they're the right facts. Christianity is about following Jesus. It's about giving your life to Jesus. It's trusting in Jesus, right? It's believing into him as your savior, your Lord, your king. It's placing your, the whole of your life in his hands. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he dies, will live. In other words, eternal life and your eventual resurrection is linked directly to what you do with Jesus Christ. Have you trusted in him? Is your life given to him? Are you united to him by faith? He is the resurrection and the life. Well, Martha does believe. She affirms her faith in verse 27. Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Now the scene shifts to Mary. Verse 28. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. Now remember in verse 20, it's, it, it says there that when Martha initially came out to meet Jesus, that Mary remained seated in the house. Why? Grief. Grief. She is immobilized with grief. She, she's in a situation where she feels like she can't move, she can't talk, she can't just, she is just utterly paralyzed by grief. 
But when she hears that Jesus is calling for her, she immediately goes. And verse 32 tells us, as soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Again, she's not complaining about the fact that he wasn't there. It's not that. It's, 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 it's an affirmation of faith. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And now we see the reaction of Jesus. Verses 33 and following. When Jesus saw her crying, and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. Now, a couple of things, a couple of very significant things from this. First of all, when it says here in verse 33 that Jesus, when he saw, he saw her crying, he saw everyone around crying, that he was deeply moved. Your Bible probably has a, a letter beside that for a note at the bottom. And if you look at the note, what that word there is translated, you know, deeply, deeply moved, it really it means anger. Jesus is angry. What's he angry about? He's not angry at Mary and Martha. He's not angry at anyone there. No, Jesus is outraged by death and what death does to people. Jesus has come upon the scene to people that he loves and cares about, and he has seen how death is just tearing them apart. And he is indignant. He is, he is outraged. He's angry by it. He's angry about it. You see, Jesus never minimizes the significance of death or what it does to people. The, the, the grief, the, just what, what death can do to people. He, Jesus never minimizes that. He doesn't minimize death. No, Jesus is going to crush death. He's going to conquer death. And see, that's what, we, that's what we're seeing here. The other thing that we need to see here is the weeping of Jesus in verse 35. Again, it points to his real humanity. We, we saw this in Isaiah 53, right? What do we see? What, what, what did Isaiah tell us that, that, that the suffering servant was going to be like? A, a man who was familiar with grief, with sorrow. And that means something for us when we grieve, when we sorrow, right? Hebrews 4.15 says that we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize because he's become a human being. And so Jesus is a high priest ascended to the right hand of God who, has, who can sympathize with, with what we go through in this life because he's a real human being. Very important to remember. And he is deeply touched tears of him. He's weeping. Verses 38 and following. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there is already a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. 
I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe that you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, bound hand and foot with linen strips, with his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. Van Gogh um, memorialized this uh, scene in his, in his, in his painting, the, the raising of, of Lazarus. And um, it's interesting because for, for Van Gogh, yellow was the, the color of hope. And this, is a, this painting is a wash in yellow. But there's something else here. Uh, Van Gogh struggled with mental illness. Um, and he actually painted this when he was in a facility convalescing from a, a breakdown. And the figure of Lazarus on the left, in the white, uh, the, the face bears a very close resemblance to, to Van Gogh himself. It's probably a self-portrait. The, the red beard, it's, it's, it, it, it's in all likelihood, it's a self-portrait. So what's he saying here? He's... Is he, he's, he's, in this, he's had this breakdown. He's painting this in, 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 in a facility where he's trying to recover. What is, he, is he saying that only Jesus, only Jesus can bring me, can bring me out from this spiritual and emotional tomb that I have been in? Well, Jesus can do that. And, and so much more. So much more. It's really important for us to understand that the resurrection that we will experience one day is far, far greater than the resurrection that Lazarus experienced. Because when Lazarus was raised from the dead, he was raised with a perishable body. He was going to experience death again. But when Christ returns, Lazarus and, and every believer throughout all time is, is going to be raised with an imperishable body. When, we, when Christ returns and we are raised, the body that we're going to get is not going to be like the perishable body that Lazarus had at his resurrection. No. The body that we're going to get is going to be like the body that Jesus walks out of that tomb with a few days after this event that we celebrate next Sunday. Jesus was raised with, a, with an imperishable body, never to die again. Father, we thank you for the incredible good news of the gospel Lord, we, we thank you that, that death does not have the last word for believers because you have defeated it. You have crushed it. We thank you for the death of Christ for sinners like us, that on the cross he, he took our sins upon himself so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be reconciled to you, and that he rose from the dead so that we can have eternal life. I hope you've been blessed by this message. 
Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.